0: So let's go through a quick uh, overview. One of the things that I think my research adds to the whole area of this Pistis Christou debate is I have done a history of translation. I've never seen that done in any of the resources that I've seen. So whether that will convince the publisher that this needs to be published is yet to be seen. Um, But here it is, so zero to 600 you've got this phrase, pistis Christou, in Greek. And then it's, and in Greek, on its face, it means the faith of Christ. I mean, it just, that's the standard protocol for the the genitive case in Greek. It's translated into the Latin. Latin, guess what? The Latin says same thing, faith of Christ. Um, so there's the first 600 years. Now you've got, the Bible entering into the English language, Anglo-Saxon, Old English, Middle English, Early Modern English, Modern English, the four periods that it's divided up into. I've tried to use those periods, sort of, but my dates don't coincide with those dates, and so it gets a little confusing, but I just want my research to be compatible with what's out there. but. From 600 to 1375, we have the Bible coming into the English language, but it's mainly uh, portions of the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, Genesis, the Gospels, and um, the Psalter. The Psalter is very popular, which the Psalter is Psalms, the book of Psalms in Latin. It's just one word, Psalter, Psalteria. And then it came into English as the Psalter, and all it is is the Book of Psalms. So during this period, we have no examples of our phrase "pistis Christu" being translated into English. The first instance of this tra- uh, this phrase being translated into English it appears in 1375, and guess how it is rendered. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ. And my thesis is that is the way it's presented in the New Testament. The righteousness of God is made available to human beings, sinful human beings, because of the faith of Christ. All right? So that's my thesis. So this translation continues from 1375 to 1703. There are eleven English translations made of the Bible, New Testament, and 100% of them render it the faith of Christ. And this this little um, chart here that I'm going to show you in a minute, but I've got it right here if you want it. You know, these are major English translations. Starts out with Wycliffe, Tyndale. Uh, Coverdale's Car- Bible, Matthew's Bible, Tevener's Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, uh, the Bishop's Bible, the Dewey Bible, and then of course the King James Bible. So everything, everybody who's translating this into English up until the year 1703, it's the faith of Christ. Now what happened between 1375 and 1703, the Protestant Reformation? And we have this entire switch in trajectory paradigm that says, no, a sinful human being is saved by faith alone, his or her faith in Christ. And that really shifted the paradigm. Now, between this period, starting with the first instance and 1881. So why do I have 1881? Why is 1881 such an important date in the history of English translations? American standard American standard. Mm-hmm. You're close. American standard is 1901. But what is the American standard? Revised. It's what? The revised. Okay. Let me. Let me. Let me let me Good learn you. Okay. We're things on the no, I know. Okay. Sixteen eleven. You have the King James. It is the Bible in English until eighteen eighty one. In the mid eighteen hundreds, a bunch of Anglican clergymen start talking to each other, and they say, "Man, we got to change this King James Bible." And so in the 1870s, they start forming a a real-life committee. They have a convocation. They make an assignment. They assign 50 or more scholars, both British and American. And they go through the process of completely revising the King James Version. And the, the Bible comes out in 1881 as the English revised version, ERV. Now the group of Americans that were on that committee said, hey, we want to do the same thing. We made a bunch of suggestions and our British counterparts didn't like them. You know, we said, you ought to say, y'all, <laughs> that's a joke. Yeah, yeah, careful. So in 1901, they did their own revision using their preferences that were not taken into account by the English part of the group, and they called it the the American edition of the English revised version of 1901, better known as the American Standard Version. But this became the foundation of most English translations after 1881. And guess what change they made to the phrase Pistis Christou? Christ. They said, this is not the faith of Christ like the King James says in every Bible before the King James. This is a sinner's faith in Christ. And so that's why, for the most part, you can't even detect where this occurs in the English translations, and it's and it's a shame. It's a real shame. So people like me are trying to change that. Okay, here's your chart. I, I don't need to go through that, but that's what it looks like. It's online, it's, here's a copy. If anybody wants a copy, and is there anybody who wants a copy right now in their hand? Derek, who else? Okay, uh, Derek, you don't know how to use this copier down there, do you? Um, does somebody know how to use the copier down there? Uh, it wasn't working today. Oh, it's not working. It works now. It works now. it. They done. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. If Derek is the only one, I've got an extra copy for him. If anybody else wants a copy, we'll take Derek's down and make copies for you. Okay. Okay. So I'm done with the historical overview. And I'm—I've got two minutes to spare. I allotted 15 minutes for that overview, and it's—I've used 14 and a half. <laughs> Anybody have questions about the historical overview? Okay. Let's get into the meat of this. Pistis Christou should be translated as the faith of Christ. It makes a difference. Theologically, it makes a difference. Let me tell you why. God makes a sinner righteous through blank or because of blank. Fill in the blank. Christ. On the basis, on what basis can God make a sinner righteous before him? It's another way of asking the same question. That's the question I'm trying to answer in the book. Remember, book, the, the questions I'm answering in the book. When does God make a sinner righteous? How does God make a sinner righteous? My thesis is those are two very valid questions. Okay? You follow me? Those are two very valid questions that need to be answered separately. And what happened in the the Protestant Reformation is the two questions got conflated. When faith, when a sinner develops faith, that's when and according to the Protestant Reformation, that's how. And that is what I'm trying to point out, is a that is an error. The Bible answers the question separately. They are two separate questions that have been conflated in modern evangelicalism. And that's why we don't know what baptism means. That's what we don't, that's why we can't understand. If a person is saved when they develop faith in Christ and that's how God makes them righteous, is by their faith in Christ, then what in the world are we doing talking about baptism? It means nothing. And then you and I come along in the restoration movement, and we're trying to dance around here and say, well, it's an act of faith, and it's this, and it's that. And I'm saying, no, we need to go to the heart of the matter. We are not asking the right question. This answers the when question. It does not answer the how question. Comments or questions on that? Because the Bible says it's not the sinner's faith in Christ. That's not how God declares someone righteous. The New Testament is clear. It is the faith of Christ that is the basis that gives God the ability, if you'll allow me to use that terminology, to declare a sinner righteous. So let's start. We'll start here, okay? Ephesians 3.12. It says, In him and through him, or in him, And through our faith in him, we we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. That's the NIV. So that is a perfect post-Protestant Reformation translation of what the Greek text says. In him, we're in him, so now because we're in him, through our faith in him, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. My point, that is not what the text says. There's your King James. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by, by what? The faith of him. as exactly what the text says. That is a literal rendering of the Greek text. So, where is my confidence before God? According to many modern English translations, most of those that you're holding in your laps, we have boldness and access in confidence through our faith in him. That is the English revised version. That is what started in 1881 and that opened the floodgates. Because no English translation prior to that said that. Through our faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's your NIV. Richard? That might be the old NIV, but the new one says in him and through faith in him we may approach was freedom of color. Okay. And is there is there a footnote to that? Is that the 2011? Can you see the footnotes? Because the 2011, like I said in my email this week, the 2011 is now alerting readers to this alternative translation. The pendulum is swinging. But thank you for pointing that out. What does the text say? We have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. There is your Greek, kistutos, which is in the genitive case, and that is the personal pronoun, third person singular, that is also in the genitive case. And it means the faith of him. So, here's, the, here's Young's literal, literal translation. We have freedom and access in confidence through the faith of him. Here is a Jewish translation. All right? You think a Jewish person has any, any interest in the Protestant Reformation? Never. Through his faithfulness. Whose faithfulness? Through Jesus' faithfulness, we have boldness and confidence when we approach God. Thank you, that is a wonderful translation. Here is uh, David Bentley Hart, his translation. Through his faithfulness, we have boldness and access in confidence. Folks, this makes a difference. It makes a difference. Theologically, it is significant. All right, I've made a note to myself. Do we have time for appendix 11. Yes, we do. I am right on schedule. So let me go through this real quick. What is Appendix 11? What I have done in Appendix 11 is I have taken my computer that I have a fantastic Bible program that they are no longer supporting. Oh, I got that email and I tell you what, they could have taken away one of my children. (laughs) They said after 27 years of work. Bible works will no longer be in production. We will continue to support it for the following so many years. When I got it, it was within the first year that it came out. Terry was working at a Bible bookstore and for Father's Day or something, she got it for me. It has been on my computer all twenty-seven of those years and it is it is unbelievable. It is the It's not the Cadillac, okay? It's the Rolls Royce (laughs) of of Bible uh, software. So anyway, I did a search, and I found every single time that the word faith, and I didn't even put that on there. I did P-I-S-T, asterisk, in in the same verse, and actually you can do it within so many words, has a genitive anywhere close to it. Okay, a genitive noun. I found forty-four of them. There are forty-four instances in the New Testament that talk about faith and then a referring to a a person or a thing. 44 of them. Ephesians 3:12 is one of them. So you've got faith of them, faith of you, singular. Faith of you, plural, faith of them, faith of me, Uh, faith of him, Um, perseverance and faith of you, love and faith of you, faith of you, faith of you, faith of you, faith of you. The point is, every time this construction is used, it always means this is referring to some other person. We're talking about the faith of me of you, singular, of you, plural, of him, of her. Now, here's what I say, and I'll just read this to you, okay? You can read it yourself. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thus... Paul's theology is all spiritual blessings are given by God to those who are in Christ. We we agree on that, right? Underlying that statement is a narrative that is assumed rather than stated in all of Paul's writings. God is now able to give all spiritual blessings to his people, Because of Christ. God's people are blessed by God because of what Christ accomplished. Jesus Christ is the means. This is going to become very important in just a second. Jesus Christ is the means through which God is now able to fulfill his promise to Abraham. When he told Abraham, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Jesus Christ is the means through which God is now able to fulfill his promise that he made to Abram. In thee all the families of the nation of the earth will be blessed. In the heated rhetoric of the Protestant Reformation, this subtle distinction got lost. These two characteristics of the work of Christ are clearly evident in the New Testament. Number one, a sinner's faith moves the sinner into Christ, wherein all spiritual blessings are now available. And number two, it is the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ that accomplishes what is necessary to make all spiritual blessings available to sinful human beings. Again, these two categories were conflated when the heated, in the heat of the uh, Protestant Reformation, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Nowhere. Okay. As a result, there, there is a large number of New Testament scholars that insists. I need somebody who is in English to make sure I'm saying that right. I'm saying there is a large number, which is singular, of New Testament scholars, which is plural, that insists singular. So I think I've got that right. That's- Okay, that the so-called category, the faith of Christ, does not exist. That's basically what they said. There is no such thing as the faith of Christ. This is not a category revealed in the New Testament. That's their argument. And sometimes this is um, passionately asserted. This does not exist. <clears throat> Listen to this. In in a com- in a um, in a commentary on this verse, this particular scholar says this. Some take the latter phrase "pistis atu" along with similar ones in Paul to refer to Christ's faith or faithfulness. But the majority of commentators rightly see that it is a sinner's faith in Christ which is in view. You know, I I started to say, that sounds a little arrogant to me, but I didn't. So here's what I say. The majority of commentators... First of all, this statement was made in 1990. The scholars who then insisted that the faith of Christ was not a category may have been a majority. I question, after my research, I question whether this group of scholars is still the minority, uh, still the majority. There's a huge, huge movement. Hold it up. Stand up and show. Them. <laughs> Why does he get his stand? There? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about uh, it, Keith. Okay. Well, this one goes into great detail about that. It's one of the. You, Steve. uh, it's Steve's. Yeah, it's Steve's. Uh, Something I love one. The New English Translation. It has it correct. It's a wonderful Bible. Uh, you see. There are lots of Bibles like this. I just flipped open a page. This is the amount of Bible text there is on both sides. You would think this is commentary below. It is not commentary. This has to do with translations. Wonderful book. Totally different than the Bible you're holding in your hand now. Thank you. And this is not one person's translation. This is a committee of some of the Premier New Testament scholars of our day, and every single instance of this phrase is rendered the faith of Christ in the text. Now, NIV of 2011 has gone back and entered footnotes to alert the reader. Just like if you saw my email about the sinful nature, did you did you read that? Oops. In 1984, we kind of made a mistake, didn't we? We kind of misled people. Sinful nature may not have been the best choice because after all, we do have the choice. We have we may have a flesh that has sinful abilities, tendencies, whatever you want to call it, but we don't have to give in to it, right? I mean, we have a choice to feed which dog. Which dog are we going to feed, right? Okay. So they've gone back and reversed themselves. And I hope they'll go back someday and reverse themselves on this one. Okay, so here's my point. As my research and presentation in the appendix shows, if this use of the genitive noun along with the genitive pronoun does not refer to the faith of Christ then this is the only instance in the new testament in which this phenomenon occurs as demonstrated in the table above in the 43 other instances where the greek word pistis is used with a pronoun and the the noun pistis or the pronoun used therewith is in the genitive case it refers to the faithful, to the faith of another person. It never refers to the author's own faith. Never. Because, see, that's what he's saying. It says the faith of him. But he's, he's saying, no, that's not right. It's my faith and your faith in Christ. That's not what it says. And it makes a difference. Questions, comments? We're moving on. Richard? Is the faith of Christ limited to a clock or calendar? In other words, will the faith of Christ exist when we all go to heaven? Uh, did you read my did you read my where the question was asked what is the faith of Christ? The, and I'm going I'm to touch on this in the final two classes when I talk about what difference does it make okay here's what I'm saying when Jesus was born and when he died during this time he was 100% human 100% human. As a human being, he developed faith. Again, this was all in my email, so if you didn't, if you, go back and read it. He wasn't zapped with miraculous faith. He developed faith the same way any other human being develops faith, by hearing the word of God. Where did he learn? Where did he know that God was going to raise him from the dead? Had God zapped that information into him miraculously? No. He learned it by reading the Psalms. The Psalms predicted that God would not leave his Messiah's body to suffer decay. Right? His faith is the faith of a human being, the prototype human being, the first human being in God's new creation. Does that answer your question? So his faith that I'm talking about is his faith as a human being that he developed while he was living as a human being. And it's that faith as the perfect human being, that now makes him capable. So Bob, does that mean that it's possible for someone else to undergo that same uh, faith learning? That was our discussion in when we in the two classes we talked about original sin. I I don't think so. But boy, that sure is a mystery, isn't it? Yeah, you weren't here for those discussions. No, I wasn't there, I was in Texas, but that's okay. But uh, but that's that's the difficulty because Christ is unique, right? As well as common to all humans, he was unique, right? And and what made him unique was it the spirit of God? Was it, Carl? You're going to jump in here. I know you are. You got something to say? Well, he was God in the flesh. God was in Christ, goodness. God chose in this man. He knew who he was. Okay, and at least. Specifically when it was twelve. 100%. Human. There you go. Somebody's got the got the guts to say it. He couldn't have been a hundred percent human. He was superhuman. He was a god man. He was that's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Hebrew writer says. He was tempted in all points, like as we, and yet without sin. It's a mystery, but Gary? What is uh it's uh the struggle I have trying to grasp how it works uh, because I do believe he was made like the children in every way the Hebrew writer says so in every way means 100% but it's hard for me to understand how that works with the passage of, like uh, in him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily so if he had the fullness of the Godhead bodily, how much did he know while he was in the flesh? Uh, that's These are the conundrums, correct? Yep. All right, we're never going to solve them. Let me keep moving. Let's keep, let's keep going. <clears throat> okay, so that was your first one and we got eight of them to cover. All right, Romans 3.26 is a notoriously difficult passage to translate, not because it has pistis Christu in it, just because it's got some weird construction. So let me look. Here's the NIV. God presented Christ as sacrifice of atonement. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. Present time, so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So there we go. Protestant Reformation, we're justified, which means we're made righteous. Remember these words, just and righteous, same word. Um, just an alternate possibility here. Who have faith in Jesus? Now, look, here's what the verse says. Being himself righteous and the righteous of fire. You know, I would if I were there, because look, you see it? It's the same word, righteous and the one who makes people righteous. How does he do that? He does that out of the faith of Jesus. That's what the verse says. God is able to make a sinner righteous out of the faith of Jesus. Now it says, this is a note to me. This is a good time to preview and review Greek prepositions. I've sort of touched on them. I'm going to touch on them again next week. So let me give you a review preview. Okay, you ready? All right, you ready? Back to grammar class. Okay, here we go. Here's a chart, okay, of the Greek prepositions. You've got into, you've got toward, up, uh, above, below, blah, 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 all these words. Here's the three I want us to concentrate on. Ace, which is movement, so you've got something moving into something else. You've got in, which is location, it's located in, and then the one that he uses here, ek, which means out of, it's moving out of, okay? Now you say, why do you talk about the lion? Because I love this. (laughs) So, here he is, upon the lion. Here he is coming down from the lion. Here he is under the lion. Now here's the ones I want us to focus on. These three over here. Here he is moving into the lion. That's ace. Where is he now? He's located in the lion. So here's your two prepositions for in. And and we're going to get there next week. Can Paul talk about of sinner's faith in Christ? Yes, 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 a thousand times, yes. Okay, and then out of, he didn't like it. So he's coming out of the line, okay? So those are your prepositions. So let's look at the verse again. Being himself righteous and the one who makes people righteous. How does he do that? Out of The faith of Jesus. Here's how I would say it. The ability for God to be the righteous of sinners, to make sinners righteous before him, comes out of the faith or faithfulness of Jesus. That is what has gotten lost in translation, and it makes a difference. Let's see how. This righteousness, which is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Okay, there's your standard post-Protestant reformation. Here's what the text says. This is Darby's translation. And notice he goes with justice rather than righteousness. Even the justice of God by the faith of Jesus Christ unto and upon all them that believe in him. Notice that two categories of faith. Those who believe in Christ and the faith of Christ. There are two categories of faith in the New Testament. They just don't show up in most English translations. King James, even the righteousness of God, which is by the by the faith of Jesus Christ unto and upon all them that believe. Okay, so there's your verse. You see this developing pattern Every time the New Testament mentions God's righteousness and faith, if those two things are in the same conversation, the passages are answering the how question, how God gives his righteousness to sinners. You follow me? And guess what? In those passages, it is never the faith of a sinful human being that answers the how question. (coughs) Ever. It is always the faith of Jesus Christ that answers the how question. How can God make me righteous? By what Jesus accomplished. Specifically, By the faith of Jesus Christ. Alright. So, two categories of human faith. Here we go. The righteousness of God, and I just put there to show you, that's how the genitive works. Righteousness, feu, theos, has been rendered into the genitive. So we're not talking about the righteousness above God, or below God, or moving down from God. All those prepositions. There is no preposition for the word of, Remember that lesson? So the way the Greek renders it is by putting one or both of the nouns in the genitive. And so we know it's the righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ. There you go. Through faith in the genitive, Jesus in the genitive, Christ in the genitive. The righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness, this righteousness of God, is available to literally, and I'll come back here next week, literally it moves into all those believing ones. It's literally what the text says. The reason I'm hammering this is because two categories of faith. Those who believe in Christ and the faith. Of Christ. And it makes a difference. Perfect faith of the only perfect human being is the first category. Imperfect faith of imperfect human beings is the second category. And it's clearly there in the text. Two categories. Alright. You're swimming yet, huh? Your head swimming yet? You need coffee? Carl wants you to come in here and pass around some coffee. <laughs> you need to stand up and stretch? Feel free to do it. Okay, so here's my objection. If we don't recognize the two categories, then what you've got is Paul, I mean, an editor would have thrown his book out the window. You've got unnecessary redundancy. The post-Reformation translation produces unnecessary redundancy in all of these verses. So, for example, if there's only one category of human faith, then what this verse says is righteousness of God comes by faith in Christ, and the righteousness of God is, to give, is given to everyone who has faith in Christ. He's repeating himself. He's saying the same thing. Now, I understand there's Hebrew parallelism. we talked about it. But that's usually in poetry, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I don't think Paul's going to be that sloppy. I'll show you that again in a minute. Here's Galatians 2.20. Here's a huge argument from a guy who spent a lot of years in ministry trying to tell people, girl, you're saved. You're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by your works any more than you're saved by your faltering faith. Because, But look at this. We come to this verse. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live by uh, in the body, I live by, and my comment, my faltering faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No wonder I'm a question mark. Right? No wonder I'm a question mark. Am I saved? I sure hope so. Yeah, I sure hope so. I hope I get there. You know, I don't know. I'll just squeak in. I'm no wonder. I live by my faltering faith. If I'm living by according to my faith, it's going to be a very weak life, right? To the extent that my position before God depends on me, to that precise extent, my position is insecure. Because here's what the passage says. King James, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the perfect, unfaltering faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do I know I'm right with God? Because of what Jesus Christ did for me. How do I know I'm right with Christ? Because my faith has moved me into Christ. I've done everything the Bible says for me to be placed into Christ. And therefore, it's no longer my imperfect, altering faith that carries the day. It is His perfect faith and obedience to His Father as a human being. We're going to talk about this later. Because He is the second Adam, right? He's the new Adam. So it's my faltering imperfect faith that gets me into Christ. Sure. How bad of a faltering imperfect faith is good enough to get me into Christ? That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Thank you for asking the question. No, my faltering faith. I mean, do I understand everything there is to know about the gospel? No, but I believe what I do know. uh, Do I repent of my sins? I mean, uh, yeah, I don't have a perfect faith, but I repent of my sins. Do I confess Jesus as Lord? Yes, I confess Jesus as Lord. Do I walk up to the baptistry and do I submit to the, to the rite of baptism? Yes, in faith that God will do what God promises to do when I do what he asks me to do in obedience to God. You see the difference? Yeah, it, it just seems kind of strange as my imperfect faltering faith gets me into Christ. Sure it does. Because God gave you steps. He gave you you something to do to assure you that you're in Christ. Something external for you to do. That's what Martin Luther said. Man, if I start feeling bad about my relationship with God, what did Martin Luther say? Remember your baptism. What did God do when you were immersed into Christ? He took your sins, put them on the cross. He put Christ's Righteousness, which he accomplished at the cross through perfect faith and perfect obedience, into you. Hallelujah. And that is God's promise. Who said, Hallelujah? <laughs> Thank you. And that is God's promise. So then, God cannot lie. My, my entrance into the faith of Christ depends on the five steps. Sure, the process. You can't, you can't get there without five. Nope. Well, I count nine. <laughs> no, and that's what I said at the beginning of class. We're right. We are right. We are right. We just don't know why we're right. <laughs> and we don't know how to talk to our evangelical friends without turning the conversation into a circus. That's what I'm trying to say. We can present ourselves in a theologically grounded way. That's what I'm offering. <coughs> That's why I'm writing the book. Let's keep moving. We got nine minutes. <clears throat> Galatians three twenty-two. Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, what was promised, what was promised, that God would make people righteous, right? Genesis 12, 3. All families of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abram. Through your seed. One, singular, (coughs) One person's going to do this. And guess how I'm going to do it? Oh, it's going to be through faith in him. Your sinful faith is going to get the job done. Ah. Scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by the faith of Jesus Christ Christ might be given to them that believe. You see what I'm getting at here? Two categories of faith. The one that gets the job done and the other one that gets me into him. We're getting there. We're getting there. Let me show you this. Philippians 3.9. Be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes by, but that which is through my faith in Christ. Remember, this is the first verse to ever show up in the English language in 1375. And how did they render it? And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that righteousness which is through the faith of Christ. And here is the zinger right here. And we have seven minutes. Save the best for last. NIV. Now, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ so that we may be justified by our faith in Christ. Now, is that redundant or is that redundant? He's just said the same thing three times. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we Jews, that's his context, right? That's his context. Even we Jews have believed in Jesus Christ. Does Paul know how to distinguish between the faith of Christ and a sinner's faith in Christ? He just did. So that, here's the purpose of me believing in Christ. So that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law. Oh, that's, you get that and it will get you, baby. Where do I want to be? I want to be in Christ. That's what Paul says. That's what we should be saying. So po- post-Protestant Reformation definition, you got a triple redundancy. We know a person not made righteous by having faith in Christ, and so we develop faith in Christ, so we may be made righteous by faith in Christ. And it completely distorts and masks what Paul is saying. Look carefully at what he says. One more time. We've got five minutes. We know that a sinful human being is not justified, made righteous by the works of the law. Again, what's his context? He's talking to Jews. We Jews know that we cannot be justified by our law. So we know that the mystery has now been revealed. What is the mystery? The mystery is that God's going to save the Gentiles and the Jews. So that both Jews and Gentiles are now made righteous by what? By the faith of Jesus Christ. So that that is why we, even us Jews, have believed into Christ Jesus. The preposition there is ace. You believe, you move into Christ. When you're baptized, you're moved into Christ. It's a movement that happens. So that. We, every sinful human being, may be justified, made righteous by the faith of Christ. All right, I'm going to skip this one because i got four minutes. This is Daniel Wallace. Um, let me just read it real quick. He's a, he's a guru of Greek grammar. Uh, and this a debate is going on. I mean, it's raging right now. In his book, he says, Translating Christus Christus, as a sinner's faith. He agrees with me, in other words. See, it's always nice when you have these ideas, and then you go out there, and you read some really, really smart people, and they agree with you. He says that translating it as a sinner's faith in Christ is a reaction to the heated rhetoric of the uh, Protestant Reformation. He calls it a Lutheran reflex. So see, I'm not as dumb as I look. (laughs) Here's another thing he says, finding that the faith of Christ in these eight occurrences does not mean that Paul denies the importance of or is unable to express the idea of a sinner developing and having faith in Christ. They're two separate things. And then I love this one. More and more biblical scholars are beginning to question the validity of the post-reformation definition of saving faith. That's why my book is called Salvation. Rethinking Saving faith in Christian baptism. Oh, this is perfect. Let me end with this. Here's the the debate actually started with the 1881 translation of the English revised version. When they changed the King James from the faith of Christ into a sinner's faith in Christ, there was a group of scholars that said, time out. Are we really gonna do that? And they just sort of got poo-pooed. But you can go back to the 1890s and early 1900s and you can find their material. Now, the debate really got going again in the 80s when Richard B. Hayes wrote his PhD dissertation for Emory University. He submitted it in 81. The faculty liked it so much they published it in 83 as a dissertation, which if you know what dissertations are like, it's like eating a piece of cardboard as a sandwich, right? Um, Erdman's came along and picked it up and republished it as a book. And they tried to make it more accessible to the average person. So they asked Luke Timothy Johnson, anybody know that name? Yeah, great New Testament scholar said, Luke, Timothy, Johnson, would you please write a preface to this book? And so here it is. Whoops, I'm pushing the wrong one. Okay. Even when considered as a dissertation, Hayes' study has qualities that demand attention. First, it is both scope and ambition. Although Hayes focuses on a single passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he seeks from the perspective of that analysis to engage in one of the most difficult of all questions concerning Paul the Apostle, whether he had any coherence to his thought at all, and if he did, where is it is to be found? Now, I don't think he's being rude here. He's just saying, Paul wrote a bunch of letters. Paul did not engage in what we would call systematic theology. He wrote a bunch of letters. So how do we sort through these letters and put them in order? Hayes rejects the available options that Paul has a single theological principle like, and this is Luther, justification by faith and faith alone. That was Luther's. That's all Paul has to say. And so we're going to throw James out because blah, 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 okay. Or others like eschatology that... (sighs) He offers instead the daring thesis that what appears explicitly in Paul's arguments is really directed by what seldom appears explicitly and directly, but is always present implicitly, namely the story of Jesus, the Messiah. And he says in another part, which is too much to quote, but I paraphrase here, this is the story that you and I are now called to participate in. The story of Jesus. God's unfolding the story. Hayes invites us to read Galatians and perhaps all of Paul's letters, and I agree, all Paul's letters, as discourse that clarifies and corrects an implicit narrative about Jesus that is shared by Paul and his readers. And the heart of the story of Jesus is the faith of the Messiah. Man, we have really missed this. Paul does believe That humans are put into right relationship through faith. He does believe that. But it's not through their own faith. It's through the faith of Christ. That's not Bob Odle. That's Luke Timothy Johnson making a comment on the dissertation of Richard B. Hayes. And those of us in the churches of Christ who believe that baptism is for the remission of sins and that it has a place to play, a role to play in the conversion of a sinner, we need to take this conversation seriously and we need to appropriate it to show people what baptism is. Baptism is the culmination of a faith process that brings us into Christ. And once we are in Christ, we are now recipients of all spiritual blessings. The most critical one of which is God makes us righteous, God makes us holy because of what Christ has done for us. I hope this is making sense. Let's pray. Father, please give us clarity of thought. Um, help me to be uh, always humble, ha- always never arrogant. I know my voice gets loud and I get excited, but please God help no one uh, interpret that as arrogance. I, I'm trying to be helpful. I'm trying to encourage your people with your message. I'm trying to show us that you have done what needs to be done to take away our sins. And you have done what needs to be done to make us holy in your sight, righteous, cleansed, which is more than forgiven, just forgiven. It's, it's fundamentally changed in our nature. We are righteous. We are participating in your very nature of holiness and righteousness because of what you've accomplished through Jesus Christ, your son. And I just pray that 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 idea encourages those who are taking the time to come to this class and that will make us more confident and bold in our relationship with you because it's not based on my mood or my feeling or how I feel about myself or how I feel about whether I've gone to church enough. It's based on what you accomplished what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. So bless us, God, and and help us to really think about this and help it to become a part of our everyday life. I pray in His name. Amen. Thank you. See you next week. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.